I'm a prophet of the 42nd dimension. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Mona. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. Alan is still on sabbatical, but there's good news for those of you clamoring for more, Alan. He is going to be sending me some photos of his current sabbatical journey, and we're going to be posting those on Instagram. So when you get a chance, go over to our Instagram page, instagram.com slash irenicast, and you can see all the the fun Alan is having on his sabbatical, his journey, his adventure. Uh, we miss him here, but we will be excited to hear all the things that he has to say. And hopefully <laughs> when he's listening to these episodes, he's not yelling at his iPod or phone saying, I should have said this. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully he will forgive us because this week, that's exactly what we are going to be talking about. We plan to address some of these bigger issues that we seem to be facing in our culture today. But we feel like one of the underlining current of all of it is this idea of forgiveness is how do you forgive? When do you forgive? Is forgiveness forgetting? Uh, all the stuff that kind of goes along with that. We think it's a pretty timely issue to talk about um, when it comes to the more personal interactions that we have with everything else going on in the world and even just our own lives and the experiences we've had and the wrongs that have been done against us by individuals and not necessarily systems. And for our segment this week, we're going to be trying something a little different. So we'll reveal that to you on the other side of the music. So for this week, forgiveness. Um, perhaps, Mona, we should start by maybe each giving our own definitions of what we think forgiveness is and then maybe moving forward from that. Yeah, happy to. Actually, this episode was kind of brought on by a listener comment. Um, yeah, actually, it was. This was definitely inspired by a listener comment. Uh Aubrey, she's been listening to our show and kind of going through some of our past episodes Hi, and actually Aubrey. left a com Hello, yes. And uh, she actually left a comment on an episode number 37, the episode that we did on the terrorist attacks and really kind of brought up in her question about this idea of feeling like it's easy to forgive an unknown out there face like a nation or a group or whatever. But what happens when we deal with personal forgiveness, especially as she mentioned in hers and I very much, uh, you know, relate to is this idea of what about when something, someone does something towards your children or towards you personally, what, what happens when that violence or that anger or that wrong invades your personal space and how do you work through that? And we just, as we were talking on what we were going to talk about this week, that just kind of resonated with both of us as far as this is, this is a good conversation to have, especially since forgiveness is central to Christian rhetoric. Yeah, it really is. It's, um, you know, you, we've heard the phrase, a lot of us, 70 times seven, you forgive someone 70 times seven times. And I have a hard time with it. <laughs> I have a hard time with it. And I, I think in the context of colonial rule, where um, not forgiving and not letting conflict go can maybe get you killed. And you can see a lot of parallels of that with modern times dealing with authority structures where you really are a lot of people are really dominated and oppressed and to stand up or to not forgive or to harbor resentment is really incredibly harmful to the person who's been perpetrated. So I'm talking kind of around this issue, but I think in the context of Jesus words, for example, saying, forgive, forgive your neighbor 70 times seven, that's because 
if the Jews in Jesus' day did not keep the peace, then Rome would come in and unleash vengeance and everyone would suffer. So in that particular political context, peacekeeping was incredibly important, which might be a little bit different in other situations. So um, to say for, to forgive 70 times 7 might have a different political connotation. And I don't know, maybe maybe wouldn't would be a lot of people would say it, it, it might be different today. You know, people who work with... Um, Psychologists and conflict experts today would say that sometimes forgiveness is incredibly dangerous and can be either re-traumatizing or can open the door for re-victimization. So what do we do when our Bible passages point that direction, right? Like to actually follow Mm, them by the book, to follow that verse by the book could actually be harmful to you. Yes. Well, you know what? I wonder if it's less about following that and really about a misconception of what forgiveness is. Because I believe wholeheartedly that forgiveness and reconciliation do not always go hand in hand, especially when we're talking about someone who's been the victim of abuse. Because that idea of forgiving someone seven times 77, that is, I think that's more hyperbole or rhetoric surrounding around like how important forgiveness is and you should always forgive. But that doesn't mean that once someone wrongs me and I forgive them, that I don't set up boundaries to prevent that from happening again. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences for that person in the relationship that we have. Um, because there are some things that we use the the term that's unforgivable. And oh, I certainly don't believe that anything should be unforgivable, but I certainly think that there are things that we can do that are unreconcilable and as well they should be. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, so for the sake of protecting people who've been hurt, right? Yes, because I've seen enough like, because, you know, we talk about forgiveness and I think it's a healing and wonderful thing when it's put in the right context. And I think it has much more to do with the person who is the victim than anything else as far as forgiveness being a mode of finding wholeness again. And part of that is letting go of that scenario playing over and over and over in your head, as opposed to the other side where I think, I think in churches a lot of times, and I, I when I'm not even saying evangelical churches, I'm saying churches in general uh, or any organization structure, they'll use rhetoric of forgiveness to perpetuate abuse where, you know, I mean, I've heard and I've seen awful things where forgiveness is used, the, the idea or the concept of forgiveness is used as a weapon and not something that's for the specific purpose of finding wholeness for the victim again. I agree. And I, I think teaching people to forgive is, uh, you know, I just don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't like forgiveness. I mean, I, I, I understand that it can be very meaningful to people, but when it when you're telling other people to do it, I think we've already lost something there. Meaning that it really should be at the total pacing and desire of the person who's been wronged. It should be completely in their core. And actually, I've been kind of reviewing some of the books that I have enjoyed um, for the last few years. One of them that I find incredibly wonderful and helpful is called Dignity by Donna Hicks. I think I've talked about it in the past. And Donna Hicks is a conflict resolution expert. She talks about forgiveness is completely in the hands of the victim. The victim has the prerogative to either forgive or doesn't or doesn't or not forgive. Like and if you take that away from a victim, you've oftentimes re-traumatized them because they've had their sense of control stripped away from them. And if you tell them to forgive, you're still not giving them control. Whereas if they choose to forgive, and that's a process that they choose to engage in, uh, in a meaningful, deep, personal way, 
um, you've restored control. And I think that's the idea behind it. For me, that's kind of what it comes down to is like forgiveness should go hand in hand with justice. Forgiveness is a celebration of what is true and what is just and what ought to be. And sometimes forgiveness happens when some of the worst atrocities occur. Um, One of the biggest keynote instances in the last you know, recent history has been um, when the victims of the Amish school shooting brought the widow of the shooter food. I think a lot of us remember that. I mean, there was there was footage on national television of these Amish folks walking over to her house with food and forgiving her and loving her. And I, I think, but that was them. Nobody told them to do that. They were not obligated or compelled. They they did that out of their own personal conviction that to release. And to let go of that um, anger, and they were they did it when they were ready to do it. And we saw that same thing with the congregation of the Charleston shooting, where they came out and they did the same thing of choosing to forgive. Yeah. So, so I guess what does it mean to forgive? I mean, they were they were releasing the actual offender or the people also hurt by the offender who are in the offender's camp. That's pretty different, I think. I think so, and I think that sometimes we make the rhetoric of forgiveness about about the the perpetrator and not the victim. And I think you're right. I think I heard this definition once and I think it might've been Rob Bell. I think a few months ago, he did like a whole three part thing on his podcast talking about the idea of forgiveness. I think it was him that mentioned it. Um, But this idea of what is forgiveness really, it's just not allowing the person who victimized you on whatever scale to have living space in your head. To keep victimizing you. Exactly. And I think that, that's part of it. And I think that what can perpetuate that not being able to be free from something like that is forced reconciliation. Like you're talking about like churches or anyone saying you need to forgive. I think that's not their job. If we say that we love and we support people, our job is to create a space for them to seek forgiveness and make it possible for themselves. I'm thinking back to a conversation I had in in class in my last year of seminary where, you know, there was a a clergy member came in and talked to the class about you know forgiveness and it was a class in conflict transformation so we were dealing doing some pretty hard emotional work like grappling with grappling with these issues and um you know the she was the clergy person was like you know very well intended like talking about forgiveness and i'm just getting more and more frustrated as this is happening because it's like you know the same old thing that you hear like forgiveness is really for the person you know, who was wronged, like, so that that anger won't keep hurting them and, you know, like, get rid of your anger and overcome your anger. And I was like, no, dang it. Like, I want to be angry. Like, I, we, you know, we talk a lot about theologies of forgiveness, but we don't often talk about theologies of rage and how rage is appropriate. A call, a, a harsh call for justice yes. is appropriate and needed. And sometimes I think when people talk about forgiveness, it's because they want a sort of cheap peace and they want to skip the step of those hard emotions. And that comes back to bite you later. It's really unhealthy to do that. Yeah. And I think that that's that again, I think more than anything, I think more people have a misconception of what forgiveness really is because it's it's work and i think it's a process and i think it's something that never depending upon the extreme nature of whatever you're a victim of is never like a a job that's fully complete you know like i can't i can't imagine what it would be like for someone that has been personally victimized in any way especially through like violence or sexual assault or anything like that but Every little movement forward to where that event or that person is no longer taking up your own headspace is a move towards forgiveness or freedom. And not a move towards excusing anything or anything like that, but a move towards moving past that event 
And I think that that's important that it's a, that it's a, it's a process. It's something that doesn't happen overnight. There are, there are beautiful symbols of it. Like we talked about with, um, the, the, the Amish shooting and the shooting in Charleston where communities are saying, we're going to choose to live in such a way that we're going to, we're going to act in forgiveness. Um, but there's no, there, there's no reconciliation there. It's not like they, you know, told the cops to not put them in jail or anything like that. It's, it's, it's for the purpose and well being of the victim. And that's it. Period. Yeah. And, and like Donna Hicks talks about, um, and I draw on her because she's incredibly helpful. She's, she's really gone forward in this idea of like, of dignity and in, in any kind of reconciliation work, both parties need to be able to come together and recognize the dignity and the humanity of the other. And that ne- doesn't necessarily mean forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that the victims work through on their own terms. Yes. And it's really for them. Um, recognizing dignity is different. Um, and that really calls the perpetrators into account. So she says that that's a, a, a different process altogether. But um, along with that, though, the, the truth-telling element is really, really important. She says, you know, and it's interesting, Jeff, you're talking about he- taking up headspace and like what that does to the person. Um, and I, I, I want to mention this and then I'll talk about trauma in a sec because I think it's important to kind of get on a good footing with what trauma is and does um, in, a, in a simple way. But she she says, Donna Hicks says, vulnerability is where the power lies. The magic happens when we expose the truth to ourselves and to others and are ultimately set free by it. That is quite a paradox. Our instincts fool us into thinking that deception and cover-up are a good strategy for self-preservation. When our self-protective instincts overpower us, they can at a moment's notice upon the hint of a threat, and they can at a moment's notice upon the hint of a threat, our life seems to be on the line. Making ourselves vulnerable at such a time feels like suicide. But she says, she goes on to say, this is exactly what we need to do. The truth-telling and the exposure and the letting the releasing of that story is incredibly important in, in healing processes. And she's talking about, she's talking about instinct and instinct is incredibly important in this conversation because instinct goes along with trauma. And the reason it goes along with trauma is because trauma will mess up a fight or flight response. So everybody, you know, a lot of us know that, you know, we're animals, we're animals at our basic at our basic levels, we have a fight or flight response that kicks in when we sense a threat. So whether that's a physical threat, an emotional threat, even a spiritual threat, that 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 thing will kick in and it will override your cognitive processes that have like thoughts and language. What happens when someone is traumatized is that the pain and the, the searing pain of that trauma gets lodged in a pre-linguistic part of your brain. And so you actually relive that trauma over and over again, but almost in a way that you can't access it through language. So a lot of recent trauma therapy has gone toward like dance therapy, body therapy, getting people to act out that trauma through, um, through moving your body, through play, through dance. Um, play play as in plays like putting on theater um so when when we're talking about instincts that instinct to fight or flight when when someone's been traumatized that flight or flight instinct gets heightened and it gets distorted and it gets hypersensitive hypersensitive especially with anything that surrounds um anything that reminds them of that traumatization so the process of vulnerability, of telling, of releasing, of forgiving, a lot of times, if you can think about it in terms of trying to soften the effects of trauma, it has a totally different story to it. It has a totally different narrative. I mean, because what's 
there's nothing to be forgiven if there wasn't some level of trauma, like something happened. And yeah, that's good. That's a good way to frame it. And I really like that distortion of something that's that's naturally within us. And it, it changes our outlook and our actions and even our instincts. And that's it can rewire your brain actually neurologically. They're doing studies, yeah. especially in young children. It rewires the, it and it can change the way your brain develops. I mean, it's really powerful to go through horrible things, right? So the process of forgiveness, if you can think about it as, you know, uh, ameliorating the effects of trauma on the person who's experienced the trauma and helping unravel some of that and put right what has been violated, both like cognitively and emotionally, you know, that that's a completely different conversation than just, well, you should forgive if you want to be a good person and you want to keep the moral upper hand or you should forgive because that perpetrator, you know, wants to feel better about themselves and get off the hook or you should forgive just because it's some like ambivalous, you know, religious obligation that you're supposed to obey. So keep obeying and keep, you know, letting someone else have control over you or whatever. Yeah. The pathway towards wholeness is is has everything to do with that idea of dignity. Like we can throw that word around, but there has to be a journey to get to that place. And whenever you, whenever you devalue whatever experience that person had to even need to seek forgiveness in the first place, then you're in turn devaluing the person. And that is, especially if they've been changed at such a fundamental level, like that should and needs to give us pause when we stop and start talking about forgiveness and what that means and how that works. Yeah, because, you know, someone who's been through something horribly traumatic, like, you know, they have very little resources. They're often grieving. They're often terrified. They're sad. Like they have very low emotional resources to do extra work and to come around and say, hey, you got to do all this more work. Like it's your responsibility to make this right or something. Um, That's how it's framed a lot of times. I don't think that's how it should be. Like, if it's really meant to be a process that protects the victim and helps them heal, that's different, you know. But it, it's interesting, though, that how much of this stuff comes down to, like, talking to the victim instead of talking to the perpetrator. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's a very good question. I think it, it maybe it depends upon the perpetrator. I think that's part of it, is that typically for someone to even wrong someone else, at least, especially more severe wrongs, there's already a power imbalance, right? Or at least for the most part. So you're also, you know, especially in forms of abuse. I mean, it always, almost always has something to do with a power structure. This person has power over you. Yeah. So you've already, you've already lost that. So then how do you even, because part of that forgiveness or part of that being, even creating a space for the person or the victim to forgive, you need to create a space that usurps that power and mm. switches it to give them a space to be able to forgive. Because on the other hand, like that's why I think forgiveness is important and I think we should talk about it, but not as like a moral imperative, but as something to strive for. Because if if this person who already has power over me in the, the physical world or whatever through position or strength or whatever, and they victimize me, then they further widen the power gap. And for me to forgive is partly taking some of that power back is that now I have some power over this person. I can tell them that they can't have this space and it's mine and I need to be given the tools to exercise like the, the agency to, to police this place, my brain, my soul, my mm. heart, whatever we want to call it. And, uh, and I think that that's a very biblical idea. We talked a little about a little bit about this back in our second episode when we talked about 
war, but this idea of peace, you know, when we think of forgiveness, probably the, the biggest biblical passage that we think of is turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek. Yeah. yeah. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, you're talking in the context of someone in that particular context, if someone with greater power than you, specifically a Roman soldier, would hit you, they're hitting you with their left hand. So it's their, their, you know, because they, because to hit you with the right hand, the dominant hand would, would say that this person is equal. You know, if two soldiers got into a fight, they would use their dominant hand. But if you were quote unquote disciplining or, you know, um, hurting someone in a lower position than you, you use your other hand. And to turn the other cheek basically physically forces them to either back down, which reverses the power structure, or hit you with a hand that says we're equals. So it's this it's not Jesus saying turn the other cheek and be a doormat. It's Jesus using a specific cultural idiom or example or metaphor to say that part of creating peace is also flipping structures in a flipping power structures so that there's there's equality and a leveling. I didn't know that. That is very cool. I like that verse a lot more now. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Cuz he he surrounds it by two others. He talks about the walking the mile in uh, if they ask you to walk a mile, walk another mile. It's a way of they shaming the, them. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And the same thing in the court. You know, if they sue you for your cloak, then you give them their undergarment, and then that's Middle Eastern culture. Um, nudity is shaming, and they would be forced to give you back the cloak because they wouldn't want you to be naked in that kind of setting. So it's all those things are these subtle, practical, creative ways that have inspired movements like Gandhi's movement in India and Martin Luther King, like this idea of like Non-violent peacemaking resistance. is. Exactly, it's resistance. resistance. Yeah, and our forgiveness needs to contain resistance because yeah. our power has been violated, and most likely was already at an unequal distribution. And part of forgiveness is reclaiming that power and giving ourselves agency. And I think when we frame forgiveness like that, it becomes less um, doormatty. Yeah, because you know Jesus yes, wasn't a doormat. Yes. Like he it just like there's nothing in exactly. his really character you know, in his words and his actions that would suggest that he was meek, you know? Um, yeah. So, so I, I think rereading that and understanding that, that those teachings differently is super important. Um, yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Super important. And, and, you know, and talking, thinking back to my thought on a theology of rage, like Jesus modeled that too. Like, you know, he flipped over money tables at a holy site, like something completely unspeakable. And he did it in a rage. Like he did it as if in a rage, if not in an actual rage with a whip. Yeah. You know, um, and completely destroyed an institution like like a crazy person. And so I think that if we say like there's such a thing as holy rage and holy anger and Forgiveness should kick in when that rage begins to hurt us, when that rage mm. begins to eat at us and hurt us, you know? And I think at, at yeah. a point it does, if it doesn't have somewhere to go. The organizers talk about a difference, community organizers talk about a difference between soft anger, uh, what is it, hot anger and cold anger. Have I talked about this on the show before? I don't think I so. just learned about this. It's, I think, pretty cool idea. So hot anger is anger that just boils over and has nowhere to go and can be self-destructive. Cold anger is anger that's channeled into action. So helpful. Such a helpful thing. So I think that if we can learn to use forgiveness as a tool to get us to cold anger, then forgiveness is awesome. 
But it doesn't mean you have yeah. to stop being angry. And it doesn't mean that you have to trust dangerous people. I think that's the exactly. that's the biggest thing I hope people take away from this, that forgiveness does not equal trust. And and forgiveness is not a is is, is not a denying of anything. Forgiveness is an open, raw honesty of everything. And no matter how you feel or what you do is, is feeling that and experiencing that because forgiveness is a form of mourning. You've lost something and you have to feel it. However, you need to feel it. You need to feel it. And anyone in the forgiveness process that says you need to deny this feeling, then they're acting not in your favor. That's not forgiveness. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And along these lines, I I really, I like the, uh, there's another book I want to mention called The Moral Imagination by John Paul Lederach. This person talks about kind of like a a holy gift of pessimism, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is like, you know, I was doing some reading on this, you know, today. And I, I honestly think that this person is onto something, this writer, that when we're thinking about the way, like making the world as, as it ought to be and healing and reconciling and not giving into cheap peace, but really seeking for like deep lasting peace that looks towards systematic change. The key gift is this, he says, constructive pessimism teaches us that distrust is needed as a reality check to assure that change is not superficial, Pollyanna-ish, or disguising other intentions. Distrust assures us that we are not dipping into and promoting a cheap hope. It keeps us authentic. See, it, that stuff like that is even more important considering the the clash that we seem to have, primarily in our culture with Black Lives Matter or All Lives slash Blue Lives Matter, This almost this, this forced binary that people throw us in when it comes to that idea. And it's interesting that he uses the word distrust. Uh, my inkling, maybe this is just because I'm a privileged white guy, is to say, you know, boundaries, which I know it, it on a philosophical level is the same thing, right? You're saying that just because this is wrong has been done and we've agreed to have forgiveness and move forward in reconciliation, it doesn't mean that I don't remember what happened. And I think that that I think remembering is an important part of forgiving. And maybe that's another rabbit trail, the whole forgive and forget thing. Um, but yeah, I think that that's those are good words. Yeah, I I wrote down in my notes forgetfulness because a lot of times people say forgive and forget or like kind of forgive and obey like um yes like forgive and move on as if it didn't happen or forgive and kind of believe this idea that things are different and that you're not there, there's no danger you know and that can be horrible that can be horrible. Um, I think forgive and forget, personally, I think it only works in like, like maybe partner or like close family relationships where it's not, that's not, it's not abuse that's taking place. You know, it's maybe deep conflict or deep annoyance or frustration, but nobody's actually being hurt, hurt. Um, So it's not like you need to protect a victim. You know, it's, it's just natural family conflict. That's when forgive and forget, like, meaning like you don't keep score. You don't keep a tally list of how many wrongs that person did you this week and you're not going to bring it up and use it as a weapon later. That's when forgive and forget makes sense. Forgive and forget does not work with actual violent traumatic stuff. You know, like, yeah, I think the idea is to move to a place where that stuff is not haunting you all the time and you can forget to that degree. But to to forget to a degree like we're going to pretend like this dangerous person is not dangerous or hasn't wronged us and we're going to let them in the door again. Um, that kind of forgetting is really, really inappropriate and, and dangerous, especially when abuse is present. Um, there was just a 
awful story in our local news about this guy who's molested like over 19 people. And it's because, you know, people misuse the idea of forgiveness and let a person like this back in the lives of certain people. And it, anyway, that's just stuff like that. Like, I think we really need to be aware that forgiveness has boundaries. Yeah. And I think this quote that I just read was not, you know, I, I don't think this person's calling from like for like distrust of everybody all the time. Like not not just suspicion for suspicion's sake. They're saying like when yeah. when a wrong has been committed, like innocent until proven guilty. Once someone's gone through the process and we've determined, you know, that that person's guilty and that person's not safe, it is appropriate to have a healthy level of distrust. <laughs> it's appropriate. Yes. It's it's and I've seen and I've seen too much trust placed in churches in particular. In particular, yeah. with with you know accusations being made against a certain person, you know who does not comport themselves with with uh, honor or uh, predatory things like toward the children, for example, and you know the pastors say, well, we'll we'll meet with them and pray with them, and we'll just keep letting them work in the nursery or whatever. Like that stuff happens all the time. The, the churches yeah. are infamous for having horrible boundaries with people, you know, and and you don't want to run around doing a witch hunt for everyone, but you, it is. It is community's jobs to protect the most vulnerable, you know, children being at the forefront of that. Yes. So. Yeah. That, I mean, that abuse and church abuse is a whole nother Ugh, yeah. episode we could do because, yeah, I mean, I've seen and heard stories being a youth pastor of other youth pastors being let go for pretty serious indiscretions and then allowed to move on to the next place where no one said anything because they, he, you know. He said that he was sorry and there was forgiveness and they wanted to do a quote unquote extend grace and then goes to another position and is put in the same place. Like that is extending grace is not the same thing as perpetuating a predator, you know, yes. and putting him in a place to do more. Thank you. Yes. Forgiveness and grace are different, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, we saw that on a large scale. I, I just watched the movie Spotlight, you know, about the whole um, the the scandal in the Catholic Church with priests and young men and all the stuff that goes into that and people covering for it and and looking at the you know the idea of the greater good. Uh, when we put someone in a place where where we're encouraging them or trying to create a space for them to have forgiveness, anytime you demean their experience or their victimization for quote unquote the greater good, then you've made that person insignificant and you've therefore damaged the greater good in more profound ways than you ever could by speaking the truth. Yeah. And I, and I think that's where w when restoration and reconciliation, it becomes like really holy work for me, really holy work is when they both protect people from being pr further harmed. They allow opportunities for, for forgiveness, but never impose them, but they lift up what should be true and just and what ought to be right. They is, yes. which is at the end of it, self-protection and self-love to say that someone, you know, to restore someone who's been violated and say, no, you are loved. You are valuable. You are not insignificant. You do matter. You know, that whatever action that needs to happen, you know, you, you don't you don't do that by pouring out wrath on the the person who has violated because oftentimes they've also been a victim, like more often than not. So I think the question that Aubrey posed in the, you know, that we referenced in the beginning of this episode is like, how do we, how do we treat people who've like wronged us in intimate quarters? And I think it can start with recognizing their humanity and their dignity and recognizing that like, seriously, I don't have exact statistics, but like, they're very high, like nine times out of 10. 
people who perpetrate violence have been incredibly damaged themselves. They have been violated. It's a cycle. It's a generational cycle. And so if you can see that that person has been horrifically wronged themselves and you know, don't empathize with them too closely as an identifying with them or letting them in too closely at arm's length, but recognize that this person has been wronged as much as they are wronging. Like the game changes a little bit. The interactions might change a little bit because you're not seeing this person as a devil or someone who's not human. Yeah. I mean, if we if we victimize the victim, then we are creating more predators in the long run. Or we're at the very least creating a space that is more and more difficult for reconciliation and peace and love and hope and all that stuff. And it's interesting to me that there's actually a lot of like new new programs in the last, you know, decade, 20 years of um, having like rehabilitation for offenders and predators. Like n- there are now circles for uh, domestic ba- violence abusers, like support circles. There are now victims awareness trainings in prisons, which is interesting. Trying to like resensitize the empathetic imagination of people who've done horrible things but in that process they have to look at the horrible things done to them and so it's you know for something that often people oftentimes people who are perpetrators have stuffed that stuff so far down and become incredibly violent themselves that to try to even look at the fact that they're complicit in hurting someone makes them open up all of the stuff that they've been trying to avoid for so many years. And so it's an incredibly complex process. Yeah. It's a complex issue situation, especially with extreme abuse where, you know, I think there's very few things that I think our culture looks at as uh, overwhelmingly abhorrent. And I think when we talk about the abuse of children, that seems to be pretty universal and, that's a difficult thing. Like I, I've been in churches now where that's a real question is what do we do? Especially here in California, we have something called Megan's law, which if you have been convicted of any sexual crime, then you are put on a database and people can look you up and they know exactly what you did, what you look like. Where do you, as someone who's in that situation, where do you go? You know, how do we as churches create a space for them and where they end up being and how they move forward. And it becomes increasingly difficult. And there's a lot of really hard questions that come in that. And the same thing comes like those nuances are not, you know, only regulated to church situations. They're regulated to our personal lives. Like there is difficult work to be done for forgiveness. And anyone that simplifies the process is doing a disservice. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe like socially to forgive, you know, and, and that's, those are such good questions you raised, Jeff. I'm thinking through them. Like, it seems like a lot of times, you know, the the examples we've talked about, in, you know, so far have been like keeping people in positions of influence, like priests who've molested young children um, and ignoring the the fact, covering it up or banishing someone and demonizing them and basically saying they're beyond grace. Like, you know, yeah, those two things are not helpful or right. I would say both of those things are not in line with the biblical vision of forgiveness, you know? So how do we, you know, create spaces while protecting the people who need to be protected? It, you know, it's interesting and, and recognize the, the insane amount of pain that those individuals who perpetrate must go through. Yeah. We fool ourselves into thinking that the, you know, you've, you said the word, uh, you know, holy work, 
a couple times. And that's, that's that work that stands out to me like this idea of holiness or what's right. Sometimes we just know that if we're even asking these questions, that if more people are asking these questions, then at least we're on in a right direction because they're complex things. And the more, the more minds, hearts that we have trying to figure out solutions to these things, the better, but no one's going to seek to do those unless they're asking those questions. And sometimes, sometimes, and I think another, I go back to the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus, you know, the whole Beatitudes, all those Beatitudes, for the most part, they reckon, they recognize a struggle, you know, blessed are the morning. There's no solution in mourning. It is, it just is, mm. it's, it's on the way to something else, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. It's on the way to something else. And I wonder if our holiness, our righteousness, our life is in the struggle and not necessarily the solutions in, in, in knowing that we're on a path towards something, but in the meantime, it's difficult. So, so if we think of forgiveness as a process and a, a path and a struggle, not an end point, then maybe that's a good way to think about it too. Because yeah, it's, if it becomes an end point, it's just cheap, isn't it? Yeah. And it becomes, you know, and if we treat it that way, it becomes not only just cheap, but, but damaging in something where, you know, if you think about it, the idea of forgiveness is beautiful. And we've created a space in such a way to where you said it yourself. When you hear the word forgiveness, you're kind of like, eh. Yeah. Well, and to add to that, I think like, you know, the person who forgives is like this like saint, like this kind of like superhuman person who like doesn't have emotions anymore and just gets to float around in a cloud because they've forgiven, you know, like that's what is that? That's ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's a struggle. It's, it's something that, that needs to happen over time. It's something you need to choose to do and no one can choose to do for you. And it is not, again, I can't express, you know, express this enough. It's not a denial of anything. And, and we work on it in small systems in our own personal lives. Like this is something that we are always wronged in one way or another. Uh, one of my favorite books that's really good on this subject is uh, Desmond Tutu put out a book a while ago. Um, I think it's called like No Future Without Forgiveness. And, you know, that's a, I think that's an important thing for us to read is because or stories like that to hear, because it's one thing like how do we, you and I, Mona, pretty privileged deal with forgiveness on an interpersonal basis. But this is someone that dealt with a, a pretty overt system of racism and violence. And how does someone who's in the midst of that begin to talk about forgiveness on a wide scale? And I think, that, you know, some really powerful things are said in that book. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah. And thinking about forgiveness after like, you know, a huge structural rift or a horrifying institution like apartheid or segregation was lifted. You know, a lot of times people, you know, societies and families and, and individuals get stuck in the mire of that violence and the the remembrance of that violence. Right. And so if forgiveness is like, saying, okay, you know what? We're going to put down our weapons. We're going to release the other party from our judgment and vengeance. We're going to release them and we're going to move forward because it's good for us. You know, that's, that's what I think it can boil down to. And I think civil rights offers some of the most incredible um, stories of that too, it, especially people who've been oppressed saying, you know what, we want to move forward. We want to work for a better world. And we can't do that if we're constantly rehashing this bring people to account, mourn for it. Like you're saying, Jeff, like grieve, go through the process, go through the emotions. And then there will come a day when you're ready to move forward. When you're ready to say, okay, I'm done living in the pain of this. I want to build something better. 
Let's build something better together. And I'm going to work with my former enemy. If you can, if they're safe, if you can reconcile, if you can build trust, if you can't, go find other people to build things with. Exactly. And recognize that your forgiveness is not based on the response of the person you're forgiving. Yeah. You don't even have to talk to them to forgive them. It's all about you as the victim of that event or system or whatever, finding peace, finding, you know, that voice is no longer in your head, directing you and causing you to be someone that you haven't, you weren't meant to be. And if necessary, recognizing someone's own complicity. Like, for example, a lot of people are so frustrated at, you know, the state of terrorism in the Middle East, you know, and, and how this is a really, really vague, giant example. But if you look back at the history of the last hundred years and see like the United States foreign policy that has caused that unrest, we can recognize in in order to forgive cycles of terrorism and to try to reconcile and make peace and forge peace, we have to recognize how we were involved in creating the problem to begin with. You know, so I think forgiveness looks behind and ahead at the same time so that you can create real change and real structural difference. So it's not cheap. But that, yeah, but the only other thing I would say to that is just be careful because that, that is, that's uh, close to the rhetoric of rape culture. You know, like if you didn't do this, then this wouldn't have happened. So I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Like that's the first thing I thought when you're, you're you're talking about that, you know, thank you for saying that you're right. That's a great point. I mean, there is there, that only applies to some situations that applies to situations where both parties could be at fault in, in parties where one person is the aggressor and the other person seriously is not, has not done anything wrong. Then that doesn't apply. (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't apply. Well, I think, Yeah. uh, yeah. And I think that goes to just what space we choose to create and how we interact. And I think that I, yeah, cause I think you're right. Cause what you say, I, I agree with, but I just want to make sure that we are clear here that in that instance, you need to be specific about what you're talking about when, where you're implicit in that. And there are certain situations where that, that is not the case. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So, I, I would love to hear people's thoughts on this. If you're listening you know, to this episode and you have thoughts on forgiveness, I would love to hear it because my, my personal feelings are pretty murky still and my personal definition is pretty murky and I think it maybe depends on each situation and my forgiveness might look a little bit different or maybe not forgiveness. I don't know. Maybe maybe not forgiveness sometimes. Maybe Do you think it's not appropriate to forgive sometimes? Personally, I think forgiveness is always something we should strive for. I just don't think we should marry it so closely to reconciliation. Mm, that's a that's, good point. that's probably my main caveat. It's cause I just, because if we're sitting here and we're defining forgiveness as the pure journey of the victim to create wholeness in their life, and that's all we're saying forgiveness is, then I think everyone should strive for it. And we should all strive to create spaces where people can have that. So when they've been victimized, giving them initial leeway to express that victimization through, you know, through protest or on a personal level through like punching a hole in their wall, whatever, to to give that space and then begin the work of how do you how do you rebuild and i think that's all forgiveness is it's rebuilding a victim to find some semblance of hope and agency and individuality again after they've been victimized whether it's on power. a small yeah exactly and reclaiming power whether it's on a small scale of someone you know took some money from you which i personally am dealing with right now against a business that has essentially robbed me in my local area and how do i work through that and and figure out a space where i'm not thinking about it all the time and Something big, like, you know, a family member was was 
molested or hurt or whatever. I think that uh, the it's still a journey. It might be a shorter journey depending upon the incident, but it's a journey nonetheless, and there needs to be space for people to walk through that. So if you're interested in more of this kind of stuff, um, the field of conflict transformation and reconciliation and restorative justice is kind of a good Google Google search key phrases if you want to read more. Um, you know, a lot of times if you just search for forgiveness, you'll find like Bible studies on forgiveness that are just kind of the same old stuff you've always heard. But if you're really looking for like forgiveness that has some, it has a vector behind it, it has some direction, it has some life-givingness to it, it has some um, grit, <laughs> um, I would I would search for that kind of stuff. It's a good way to put it. I like that. Forgiveness that's with grit. grit. That's, that's good. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Like that's the feeling we should get when we think of forgiveness is this is gritty, hard, difficult movement forward. This is not putting aside um, your humanity. Exactly. In fact, it's reclaiming it. Yeah. And it's putting it in the forefront. Love it. Yep. Yeah. That's good. Well, we will put links to all the books and things that we've talked about on the show. And if you have any other comments for the show, especially for this particular episode, you can do that at irenacast.com slash 73. And then for general feedback for the show, you can go to irenacast.com slash feedback. Uh, on the other side of the music, we're going to be trying something a little new with our <laughs> segment. <laughs> so stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> We are trying something new, and we're not exactly sure what to call this segment or how it's going to work, but it's something that actually, as we've been talking through the course of the show about what we could do for segments, this was kind of an idea. I can't remember which one of us thought of it It first. Okay, it was you. Okay. And I thought it was great. (laughs) And this is kind of like, you know, what's the... What's the term when someone's gone, the kids will play or whatever? When, I don't know. When the cat, the cat is away, the mouse mice are at play. Yes. So Alan is our cat, and <laughs> he wouldn't let us do this. I, yeah, this wasn't. I don't think he he was too fond of this. No. And honestly, we're not a hundred percent sure, but we're just gonna do it because <laughs> we we can. <laughs> if you're offended, I'm sorry. But yeah. So you know, write to us and tell us why, and we'll talk about it. We'll resolve it. Yeah. We'll maybe for, forgive each other. Exactly. Good. Nice. Very good. Thanks. So, and again, just in, in, it, it goes without saying, if you're listening to the show or you've listened to the show and you're, you're an avid listener, this is all tongue in cheek and satirical in all kinds of different ways. But we've often joked about, uh, well, I guess I've often joked about, you know, I'm going to quit this church thing and start a cult because there's more <laughs> money in it. <laughs> There's way and, more money in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm like, you know, why am I living like this when I have the skills to manipulate mass groups of people? What are you doing <laughs> with your life, Jeff? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we are gonna we're gonna exercise our creative Ex- thinking skills. Or are we gonna exercise w- our creative uh, thinking oh, skills? There you go. Oh. Well, that depends upon the the nature of the uh, theology we create. Yeah. We, so we have not discussed this ahead of time. I want you all to know this is completely improvisational. Um, yes. But I'm hoping our, our goals will align. What do, you, what do you think your cult goals are, would you say? My cult goals yeah. are money. My, okay. Period. That's, that's your number one. Okay. That's my number one. If I'm going to do this, if I'm going to jump off the edge and I'm going to manipulate people, I take no pleasure in that unless I get money because I can use that money to take pleasure. 
in other oh. things. Oh, okay. Uh, I think I just want influence and fame personally. Okay. That's all right. So that we have different agendas here. So we are creating. We're going to create a cult, a hypothetical cult yeah. that if, if we all decided that we didn't care about people and we wanted to manipulate masses, this is what we would do. This is not what we want to do. We're just <laughs> We're just joking. thinking about it. <laughs> exactly. So right now we've already established that, Mona, you are the face of the cult and I will be I the can, behind the scenes I to be the pulling the strings. Yes. That's great. Because you, you want the fame, right? You have to be the figurehead. So, And I don't want the fame. I just want the money. Okay, great. So, but do I get some all of right the money? Now, do I get this. some of the we could do like oh, a course. seventy thirty kind of a deal. You can't be famous and not have money, so you'll you'll get money. Thanks. I'm just saying that's all I. Care I'll get about. a ghostwriter and and get a book deal and like go on you know talk shows and and you know I don't know wave my there hands at people and like see what happens. Maybe they'll start shaking or something. Exactly. Yeah. So ho- <laughs> hopefully we get to the end of this and we're not so specific that it sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm the figurehead. You're the money bags. You're the money yes. guy. You're, you're the you're the CFO, the holy CFO. We'll call you. That's right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what what are some of the distinguishing theological features of our cult? Do you think? What do we value? Well, I think I think we need to start with, you know, a group of people that have money. Yeah. But that are also easily swayed. Okay, so we're just gonna go with the easily swayed, you know, m- m- people with money. And then what? With a, with a modern amount of money, modern because we do, yeah we don't need to we don't need to go after the the rich rich. They're gonna can... feel entitled and try to tell us how to run our cult, and I just don't feel like dealing with that. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't want to deal with that either. Great. I want. Okay. I want obedient sheep. Obedient. That's vital. Total control. Yeah. Vital. Great. Okay. Um. So we value obedience. Um. So they're gonna have to comply with some things. What are they gonna comply with? Hmm. I don't know. Well, we need we need a. We need a gimmick. We need a hook. What is it that makes us us? You know, what are we going to bring people in from the first thing? Yeah, that's a good question. And and that's like really unique. Yeah. Nikes and Kool-Aid have already been taken. So It's true. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Man, those are good ones too. I know. They're really Um, good. They're really good. Poor Kool-Aid. We could go with with like Jell-O and Adidas. (laughs) What if we went after nerd culture? Sci-fi geeks. Okay. Okay. Right. We could tack onto an existing franchise, maybe. Exactly, because they're already in the mindset of being open. Yeah. Because as one of them, open to different ways of thinking and all that kind of stuff. So perhaps we can find some some pseudoscience base. Yeah. For explaining some extravagant thing in which we've been chosen somehow by a higher power or alien or something. Well, okay. But the the thing is that sci-fi people, like a lot of those franchises, they would have their own like kind of religious structure built into their universes. So I don't know. We can't really just steal steal one of those. You're just talking no, about No, we'll have to be creative. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm talking about the demographic. Yeah. Like that's, I feel like, and they've got expendable money, right? They're going to Comic-Con. They're buying the comic books. I don't think they so have there's, money. <laughs> well, their parents have money, so... <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, here's the thing. So I just started dating a biologist and we were talking about epigenetics and I've talked about that previous on the show without knowing anything about it really myself. I really just don't. And so I learned that epigenetics really isn't as exciting as I once thought. It just means anything that actual genetics can't explain. So maybe that's that could be the realm of our of our cult material. Yes. Yeah. Yes, a go- hypothetical. Are we going aliens or deities? Hmm. 
I think we can find a middle ground. Some unknown force that's out there. Okay. That isn't necessarily physical. So the force. Yeah, or dimensional. Let's go dimensional. Right? Okay. Because that's alien, fourth, but it's also godlike. Fourth dimension. Yes. We're going fourth dimension. Or maybe tenth dimension. I don't know. What number do we like? Is there we got a special number? Seven. You gotta go seven, right? That, if you have a cult, seven's gotta be in there. Seventh dimension? Or we could just put in jokes in there. So we could do forty two. That is a good one. What's right? forty two? Oh, forty two. That's the number. That's did you ever see Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or universe oh, or whatever. Oh, there the you go. The okay. Thing. Okay. Forty two is the answer. The forty second so. dimension, and the goal is to convince the forty second dimension overlords that our epigenetics have been idealized. No, no. That they have given us the leaders. Yes. The secret to be able to do that because oh, they have to go through us. There has to be a secret. Otherwise. There has yeah. to be a mystery at the center of this thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, we have no power if everyone's on an equal plane. We've got to create hierarchy. That's our number one have to. goal okay. in the beginning. All right. So they've revealed this to us. Um, yes. Are we going to claim that our genetics are perfect? Because that could create a lot of problems. You know, people start trying to capture us and, and, and no, steal our DNA. No. You know? no, we're not. Let's, okay. You know what? Let's make it. Let's, let's inject some humility into this okay. and say that we discovered this. And they reluctantly partnered with us because the alternative would be worse. Whoa, that's they're, ominous. They're, what does yes, that mean? They're good beings that don't want to harm. So they figure we've discovered something we shouldn't discover. We need to work with them and they will be our... Our... Witnesses. Our, yes, our witnesses are, you know... Mouth what's the What's the word? Mouthpieces. Uh, what, prophets. Whatever we, whatever word we want to use. Okay. I like prophet. I could be a prophet. A prophet. prophet of the 42nd dimension. Yes. I like that. It has a good ring to it. It does. It really does. Yeah. Um, okay, great. So we're going to we're gonna convey the, the secrets that we've learned. Like, maybe as we learn them, like, we're going to have to chronicle our revelations, probably. You know, because we can't give it all up front. We have to, like, release it. We have to do a slow release. Yeah, for sure. No, we, we, and we have to have uh, a hierarchy of information. Like, you have to get to this level to get this information. Okay. Yeah, I'm done with that. We could do that. But it's all got to be under, like, it can't be something super weird on the surface. So I think we need to base it around, like... Pokemon. Like, yes, or Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons or something like that. Like, our services or our gatherings should be playful, should be, like, maybe we maybe we use role play. Maybe we create <gasps> a role play game as our window into... I mean, okay, I was always great. told yeah. when I was growing up in Pentecostal churches that if you start playing D&D, you are going to love the devil. Yeah, so exactly. So we can use that logic great. in reverse. Okay. Okay. I'm just thinking of all the people I've been walking around town, you know, and seeing like grown-ass people playing Pokemon and like talking about it amongst themselves. Um, Pokemon just took over the internet and took the number one place of porn. And as a friend of mine pointed out recently, that it's probably because the same people are now playing Pokemon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a different kind of Pokemon, I think. Alan's going to be so mad. I know. <laughs> Alan's gonna be so mad. I'm sorry. All right, Alan. so <laughs> <laughs> so let's. Uh, okay. Well, then <laughs> let them. Maybe we should invent an app. 
Like that'll be our window in. The app? Okay. Yeah. Some kind of app, some kind of viral thing. Yeah. And then I don't I don't think it really matters what we say. We can change it. Yeah. Because we can just say we've been re- this has been revealed. Um and then we just need to figure out money. So the app should be freemium, right? Just like all the other Absolutely. Yeah. Get it? So we get them hooked and then we they buy extras. Yeah. And we Maybe we can we progress them. to gatherings like Well, well okay, wait, um, wait, wait, wait. Maybe we can we can convince a rumor that the app has like these special frequency transmissions that actually like start changing your DNA as you engage with the app, you know? Like it it uh, actually becomes literally viral. Yes. You like and it? then we convince them the places that they go to whatever we decide they catch, like that area that takes them to, yeah. that there's some kind of value to that area. That it affects their DNA, to, like, you know, like yes. radio, some some sort of like helpful radioactivity, you know. Like these are connection points to the 42nd dimension. Yeah. These are Portals. potential rips in the, yes. 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 Thin places. And, there we go. And uh, there's like magnetic activity, you know, and electrocurrents, you know, from like you know, geysers or like, you know, flocks of animals that live there or magnets that we've implanted in the yes. soil. But in order to make it believable, we have to rig some sort of miracle or event at at least a couple of those places yeah. and get high publicity on them we definitely do. so we can perpetuate the myth. Yeah, we definitely have to have some like, you know, stories that people tell each other. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm concerned that we are a little too good at this. <laughs> We might be too good at this. I yeah. kind of want to play. So, I want to participate now just to. Okay. So how are we going to actually make money though? That's the goal. Well, that's the thing is once we get people hooked in, then we can figure it out. We can, we can create fake devices that give them that thin out those places. Oh, um, we, well, we can, maybe to progress to the next level, like you have to, yeah, you have to levels. Donate. That's good. Yeah. We need levels. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, because our constituency, like, they're not going to fall for, like, we're going to bless this hanky and it's going to give you, like, extra blessings exactly. if we mail it to you. Like, send us a blank check. They, You know, they're going to be more keen than that, like, more more savvy. So we'll have to do something a little more complex. Yeah. Something more personal. I think we should, like, set up, you know, places for people to gather. And, oh, yeah. You know, like, that are we, – we want to do stuff that they're already doing. And then just tweak them a little bit. We don't want to separate them from people because if we separate them from people like other cults, then we're separating our money stream and we're not going to get as much. No, but to get as much people to come in. That's a keynote, though, of cults. You have to have an insular culture. Um, well, that's what the, that's you what have the to levels isolate are for. Them at a so point. we create. Okay, gr- yeah. okay. So at a point, you know, they get to move to the sacred compound. You know, that's yes. like the most direct portal to the forty-second dimension. Yeah, we create a class system. Where people okay. want to get to the top and they will step on each other to do it. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Great. Sounds great. So what's the ultimate goal here? Are we just not going to tell people? It's like intentionally, you know, complicated and fuzzy. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Keep it that way. And then we'll we'll bring in a select few and incorporate them into the, the leadership planning. Yeah. Because we have to be honest with ourselves. We're not going to be able to come up with all the great ideas. No. There are going to be people there that are going to help and be great. Yeah, but we're just going to have to start splitting the pie, you know? I think we should have those people like doing our laundry. Agreed. Yeah, they'll be on some sort of servant role where they'll be still below <laughs> us in the hierarchy. <laughs> I'm afraid for how much we're revealing about our personal hopes and desires in this segment. I know. I, I, Do you feel I, weird I'm about telling this? you. 
I'm convinced that there is some psychologist that's listening to this show. It's like shaking her head, just shaking. And it's just like, like, man, these people are so sick. There's something wrong with with us. (laughs) Please forgive us. Yes, that was just. I don't know if this is something. If if you like this segment or you don't like this segment, either way, we are the prophets of the 42nd dimension. (laughs) (laughs) Download our app now. We will make you perfect. Yeah. As it sounds like it's no. starting to sound a little bit like Gattaca to me. You've seen that movie? A little bit. Yeah, yes. Yes. Movie. Very much so. Yeah. So I guess listeners, keep us accountable. If we start incorporating the number 42 into this podcast, 42. stop 42. us or stop listening. 42. Because we're not. <laughs> 42. We, exactly. We're not going to. You should gonna... go back and listen to episode 42. Yeah. 42. 42. What is episode 42? I don't know. If it's, Let's if find it's out. something like strange, then. That's gonna be. Let's find out. Episode forty two. Maybe they'll tell us. Was our was our holiday extravaganza? Oh, <laughs> see, we're safe. No, any cult needs a good holiday. I think that's telling us. Yeah. Now we need to think of our holiday. Our holiday would be. Oh, that's a really hard one. Yeah, we'll have to think. Maybe we'll we'll have we'll have this segment again. The continuing adventures. How about of just the just chocolate? Yeah. I'm I'm just saying, uh, gonna throw chocolate out there as an idea. Everyone loves it, oh, yeah. so we're tacking onto something that's already successful. Yeah, but I think we should revisit this idea. I think so. Yeah, I think we have a couple more weeks probably before Alan gets back, so we have time. Because I have to perfect the idea, <laughs> then we can pitch it to him. You know, be like, Alan, do you want to you want to get in on the ground floor of this? We only yeah. need ten thousand dollars. <laughs> I think maybe he's sitting there on the top of some mountain, listening to this, being like, yeah. you know, I didn't like this idea at first, but. I'm in. Have we convinced you? I'm in. Yeah. Okay. Great. He'll so. have to let us know. We'll, we'll ask him this week. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that that'll, we don't want to give too much away. No. So that'll do it for us this week. <laughs> uh, if you enjoy what you hear or are incredibly offended by what you hear <laughs> and know we need help, the best way to help us is to support us. And you can find out all the ways to do that at irenacast.com slash support. And uh, oh. we we await your feedback and your support. This is a weird episode, way. like all around. This is. I'm, I'm glad this we is. did it. I have no regrets in life. No regrets. None whatsoever. <laughs> so for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm a prophet of the 42nd dimension. I'm Mona. Thanks for joining our <laughs> cult. I mean, conversation. <laughs> Okay, that's good. That was good. That'll work.